This episode of The Minimalist Podcast is brought to you by Joshua and Ryan's thoughts, feelings, and opinions. Take it as so. Ultimately, you need to make the best decisions for you and your loved ones. If you want to support our podcast, please visit theminimalists.com slash support. Enjoy the show. Meh. All right. Yeah. It's just... Um, yeah. Oh, man. Whatever you I was going to prepare something, but I, was, I felt really confident about Ryan. <laughs> you can just use that one. Teach me a lesson. <laughs> um, What's wrong with that one, Sean? I think I think we just skipped the intro this week. And All right. I think everyone knows that like there's no advertisements or or whatever. And of course, if they want to to you know like support the podcast, they can go to theminimalist.com/slash/donate. Let's uh, let's move on to the show. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are The Minimalists. Welcome to episode number 13 of our podcast. Uh, Today we're going to talk about uh, jobs or careers or passion or mission, whatever you want to call it, and we'll make some distinctions there as well. Uh, if I have a little bit of a, a nasally, more nasally than normal voice, it's because Ella is sick, uh, and that means Rebecca and I are also sick. So <clears throat> actually, I'm fighting it off. I'm doing like my best ninjutsu against a cold right now. I would argue that I'm not completely sick, and I'm using that 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 you know, positive intentions, positive yeah, thought. Yeah, you're using the secret. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, if you, if you hear a little bit of uh, nasally-ness uh, in my voice, that, that is why. But today, we got a whole lot to cover. Um, Ryan, I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to make a change, an update, an I addendum to our, our last podcast. <laughs> uh, don't we all hate changes, really? Yeah. I, I said, you know, we were talking about we're going on tour in May, and my the city I'm most looking forward to is getting back to Dayton, Ohio. Now, there's a few reasons I do want to really get back to Dayton, Ohio, is because there's awesome Thai food, the best Thai restaurant in the country, and we've been to Thai restaurants, I think, in 40 states now. Yeah, and, and many countries. Yes, and many countries, actually. Yeah. And and the best Thai food I've ever had is at Thai Nine in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, certainly down. one of the best coffee shops is our, one of our favorite coffee shops, uh, Press, which is in, in Dayton. And then, then, of course, Dayton has just a bunch of amazing people. Don't because, forget about the sushi, man. Oh, man, yes. Uh, Sakai, which is actually in Troy, Ohio, yeah. north of Dayton. And so some good. of the best sushi in the country. There's It is like top five in the country, it it really is. Sure. It's yeah. amazing. But there's a Honda plant there, and so it, it is just this most amazing experience. In the middle of cornfields, there's a sushi restaurant. <laughs> it is. So yeah, it's crazy. I am definitely looking forward to getting back to Dayton, but I'm also looking forward to going back to Los Angeles, uh, which is one of the cities toward the end of our tour. We often talk about how we're switching from a, a society of ownership to a society of access. And the thing I like about Los Angeles or any really big city is 
access to virtually everything, whether it's great sushi or a cryo chamber. Uh, I'm going to get frozen while I'm there, uh, which I, I love. It really helps with inflammation. It really helps with my back. I have a ton of uh, back issues, and, and that definitely helps. We're going to go floating while we're there as well. And, and plus, we're going to do a bunch of really cool stuff with awesome people while, while we're in town just for a few days. So I, would, I want, want to change my answer and say that I'm really looking forward to Los Angeles, but I'm looking forward to just about every city we're going to. So in May, Ryan and I are hitting the road. We're starting out in New York City, also a lot of access there. Not the same weather as L.A., uh, but in May, it may be actually pr- pretty similar. So we're starting our tour May 1st, 2016, uh, New York City. Then we're headed to Boston, Washington, D.C., Miami, Dallas, Dayton, Chicago, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Salt Lake City, back here in Missoula. And then we're headed up to Canada for uh, Toronto uh, for our final stop of, of the tour there. And um, I'm looking forward to all of those. It is going to be an amazing month, a huge growth experience. We're bringing our documentary with us. We're also going to do a live version, uh, Ask the Minimalists, uh, with with the audience there. A lot of these cities are selling out or pretty close to selling out, so you may want to get your tickets soon. If I didn't mention your city, don't worry about it. You can still get tickets uh, this documentary will be showing in more than uh, 400 cities throughout the United States. You can just go to minimalismfilm.com and click on See the Film. Find the theater closest to you and go ahead and reserve your tickets. But keep in mind here, this is a special limited release. It's going to be in over 400 cities, which is a wide release, but it's limited in the sense that in many cities it will be for one night only. And it will show only if enough tickets are sold. This means you can't wait until the night uh, of the documentary showing to get your tickets. Because if you wait... You won't actually have a showing there. We have to sell enough tickets in each city in order for it to happen, in order for the theaters to say, yes, we want you here. So just head on over to minimalismfilm.com, click on See the Film, and you can find the theater closest to you. Let's start with a voicemail from Cal in Milwaukee. I am currently in between a first and second round interview for a sales position that I care deeply about, that I care deeply about at an athletic club. Fitness is my passion, and I have great respect for the integrity of the company and the leadership of the general manager. However, I feel that I struggle in the where do you see yourself in three to five years interview question. Currently, I would answer how I've been taking steps each and every day to improve my daily habits and discipline, such as reading when I wake up and before bed, meditation, and exercise. My self-growth helps me improve and can also add value to my team and where I work but this may not be exactly what an interviewer may want to hear. It's challenging for me to say that I want to be a manager at X time when it's hard to know if that's really where my journey will take me. How can I share my passions and quest for self-growth while also sharing my passion for the company without naming some level that I'd want to achieve? Cal, first, I just want to say congratulations, man, on incorporating all of those wonderful habits into your life. That is, that's huge. And I think those are very important things to speak to when you're in an interview, because I think uh, not a lot of people have been able to incorporate all those good habits. So it's definitely an accomplishment. So congrats there. But uh, Josh, where do you see yourself in three to five years? You know, Ryan, my, my favorite pedagogical technique is if I don't like the question I'm being asked, I will very confidently answer a different question. And that's what I would encourage Cal to do in an interview here is to shift the question a bit so that you can shape your answer accordingly. Thankfully, I don't have to answer that question because my honest answer to that question is I, I don't see myself anywhere in three to five years specifically. 
What I am aiming toward is not a specific objective or target or goal. I see myself moving in a particular direction. Now, true, I'm 34 years old right now. I aspire to be more like my 40-year-old self. But that 40-year-old self is just a better, a, a improved version of who I currently am because I am living a life right now that is in accordance with my values and my beliefs. And, and because of that, I, I, I just see myself going farther down that path. And Cal, what I would say is change the question if you have the opportunity. So if someone says, where do you see yourself in three to five years? You can talk about what you're passionate about. And so if I'm going into a job interview and someone asks me, where do you see yourself in three to five years? And I know it from, from what Cal is saying here, I know I'm interviewing with a company that is like, I really love what they're about. They, they are values-driven. They align with who I am as an individual. I can see myself here a longer, in longer term, uh, but I don't know where that is necessarily. I, what I would tell them is, here's what I'm really passionate about, and make sure it's applicable to what they're doing there. If, if it's a, a health facility and you know they, they do a lot of things, but you're also passionate about horseback riding and it has nothing to do with them, that probably doesn't need to come up in that conversation. They may ask somewhere else, what are, what are your hobbies? And, and that could come up there. But you want to make sure that your passions align with what they are, are looking for in a candidate. And also keep in mind, you are interviewing them at the same time. And so you can always reverse the question on them and say, where do you see this business going in three to five years? I, I think that's important because what you, what you can say to them is, I'm looking forward to growing with this company. And I see that there's a lot of growth potential here. But you, can you tell me about what, what's going on here? What are the things that are, I should be excited about? What are the things I should be looking for as I'm growing with your company so I can try to make sure that we're growing in the same direction? What about you, Ryan? <laughs> Where do I see myself in three to five years? Um, I would answer very similar to what, to what you said. I, if someone asked me that question, if I was to answer it head on, I would say I am trying to be the best 40-year-old version of myself that I can. Here are some of the steps that I've taken in my life to ensure that. Here are some of the hobbies um, that I or, – or, or passions that I've been cultivating. Um, but three to five years, hard to say where I'm going to be. But I do aspire to be uh, that, that best 40-year-old uh, version of, of Ryan Nicodemus. Our next voicemail is from Christian in St. Paul. You guys seem to subscribe to the axiom that less is more, and I get that. Um, but can you think of a scenario when more is less? So here's where I'm coming from. I started a business recently, and I love it. I work a lot, often seven days a week, but it's great. However... Uh, it is a service-based business, and I get calls and texts from clients and prospective clients at all hours, just about every day. Um, it's hard to be present with friends and family with my phone blowing up. So I'm considering getting a second phone, adding another possession to help compartmentalize my life. In this case or in any other case, do you think more can actually be less? Christian, two phones, hypocrite. You're not a minimalist. <laughs> We're kidding. We're kidding. No, um... I think in this situation, yeah, I mean, a second phone sounds like it would add a ton of value. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not, in, in, you know, encouraging all of our listeners to go out and get second phones. But if you do have a business, I think it is important to keep your business uh, number separate from your your personal number. Yeah, uh, if, it's, if it's infringing on on your daily life, absolutely. You're yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. I. I agree with you that, that more is less. Sometimes less is more. And, and we wrote an essay about this. I'm going to read a quick excerpt 
uh, from this. This is from our essay collection, Essential. So Christian, I'm going to send you a, a copy of this because there's a whole chapter in there about about less in terms of stuff, but less in terms of other areas uh, of life as well. This is called More is Less? Less is More. We all know this saying, first popularized by minimalist architect Ludwig van der Rohe, which has been transformed into a platitude by advertisers, TV shows, and even corporate America as it right-sizes people out of their livelihoods. We all have to learn to do more with less around here. But is less really more? And if so, is the opposite also true? Is more actually less? Questions like this may be more important than you think. The two of us enjoy taking commonly accepted truisms and trite stock phrases and flipping them on their axes, exploring the obverse side of cliches and hackneyed phrases, shedding light on the opposite sides of supposed facts. For example, what moniker does our culture often assign to a well-adjusted, ostensibly successful person? We often say that these people are anchored. He is such an anchored person. We heard this term frequently during our late 20s. Ryan and I were regularly described as anchored people, and for the longest time, we took this as a compliment. Then we stopped taking it face value and asked, what is an anchor? That, que- that question led us to important, an important discovery about our lives. An anchor is the thing that keeps a ship at bay, planted in the harbor, stuck in one place, unable to explore the freedom of the sea. Perhaps we were anchored. We knew we weren't happy with our lives. And perhaps being anchored wasn't necessarily a good thing. In the course of time, we each identified our own personal anchors, circumstances keeping us from realizing real freedom, and found that they were plentiful. I cataloged 83 anchors, and Ryan had 84. We discovered big anchors, like debt, bad relationships, etc., and small anchors, superfluous bills, material possessions, etc. And in time, we eliminated the vast majority of those anchors, one by one, documenting each of our experiences in our first book, Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. It turned out that being anchored was a terrible thing for us. It kept us from leading the lives we wanted to lead. Not all of our anchors were bad, though. It's just that the vast majority prevented us from encountering lasting contentment. Are you an anchored person? Is that a good thing? What are some of your anchors? And what are other axioms you might want to question? Which brings us back to our original set of questions. Is less really more? And if so, is more actually less? We suggest that the answer to both is yes. Owning less stuff Focusing on fewer tasks and having less in the way has given us more time, more freedom, and more meaning in our lives. Working less allows us to contribute more, grow more, and pursue our passions much, much more. Having more time causes less frustration and less stress, and more freedom adds less anxiety and less worry. And more meaning in our lives allows us to focus far less on life's excess in favor of what's truly important. So, more is less? Yes, more or less. And Christian, the thing I would say here is it really depends on what we're talking about. In fact, bringing one thing into your life 
may make it easier for you to interact with the people in your life, whether those are clients, customers, etc., and, and, and interacting with them appropriately using a business device. But of course, you want to be able to allocate your time with the people you really care about. I know back in the corporate world, Ryan, you and I, we were like doctors. We were essentially on call 24 hours a day, mm-hmm. uh, pretty close to 24. Actually, it was 24 hours a day because uh, we managed a bunch of retail stores back in the corporate world. And and if an alarm went off at 2 a.m., I had to go out to one of the stores if the manager wasn't available. So I, I, at a time, I was a regional manager for a bunch of retail stores. And, and so if they couldn't get a hold of the store manager, I would be the second call on the list. And so I would have to go out to the store, make sure no one was breaking in and, and calm the police down and all this other stuff. And so I was on call all the time. And by the way, during the day, my BlackBerry would go off about 250 different times throughout the day because that's about how many emails I would get uh, every single day, not to mention the phone calls and the text messages and the other updates and alerts that were constantly beeping and buzzing and blurting into my phone. And you know what? That didn't align with who I wanted to be. And ultimately, I did have to remove myself from that. And Christian, you may want to set up some boundaries that you aren't always 100% available, and that is okay. And I remember I had to have this conversation with my boss once. He called me. It was December 23rd, and I was out on a date, actually. And I let my phone go to voicemail. It was 8 p.m. on December 23rd, two days before Christmas. The stores had already been closed or were just closing, and he was waiting for our, our final sales update who one of the store managers was tasked with, with sending to him, and he, he, hadn't, he hadn't received it in what he perceived to be a, a timely manner. In fact, it wasn't even that he needed the final numbers. He was just looking to see where we were as an estimate. And it was totally unreasonable, I thought, at the time, but it was part of our corporate culture. And so I let the, voice, the phone go to voicemail, and he called back three or four times. And eventually I just answered the phone, and, and I said, you know, I think this is inappropriate, and you have bad expectations. And it's clearly my fault for setting poor expectations, but it's also part of our company's culture that this expectation has been set, and it doesn't align with who I am. And and that's a hard conversation to have, but often the hard conversations are the most important conversations to have. And Christian, this is a conversation that you're in a good position to have because this is a conversation you have to have with yourself at this point. You are in charge of bringing that new phone in and then using it appropriately. Yeah, I would just add that as someone who is self-employed, it's very easy to just work yourself to death. There's always going to be work to do, um, especially when you're self-employed. So yeah, Christian, I would just echo what Josh said, said, set some boundaries, set the right expectations with your clients and customers, um, and yeah, if a second phone is going to help take some of that stress away, help you uh, remove yourself from all of that that chaos, then yeah, certainly that would be a good idea. Um, I would say too, you might want to look into, I know when we were working in telecommunications, you could get two phone numbers on one phone and you could actually turn one of the phone numbers off when you needed to. So that, that would be another option too you might want to look into. I was just going to throw that out there. Yeah. Jack in Denver has a voicemail for us. I'm a college student and will be graduating in May, and I have a corporate job lined up for after graduation. It's the cushy banking job with the high salary and the high signing bonus. The you know, only problem is I really see myself more aligned with something more creative. 
to be a minimalist, I feel like I need to focus my life around one thing rather than having both a career and then also a side hobby. So I guess my question is, um, do you need to make money from your passion or does it sometimes make more sense to just let things be hobbies on the side? Jack, the first thing we need to do is make some distinctions and, and maybe incorporate some definitions here. Let's talk about a job versus a career versus a mission. And let's talk about where passion comes into the equation there. So if you can usually tell with how happy someone is with what, what they do for a living, what they do to earn a paycheck by how they describe it. And the first thing you'll hear people say is, I have a job, or I have to go to my job, or this is my job. And, and that tends to indicate that there isn't a whole lot of passion or even excitement uh, with what they're doing. Nothing wrong with having a job. We all have to pay the bills. Uh, but there isn't a, a whole lot in terms of, of, of passion or meaning or purpose in, in what they're doing. The second thing you'll hear people say often is, I have a career, and that's a step up from a job. It's more of a long-term job. And I would actually argue that your career is perhaps the most dangerous thing that you can have because it's a, it gets you to a point where you're comfortable, but most people don't find a lot of value, certainly a lot of meaning or purpose in, in their career. There are the select few people who call what they do for a living their mission. And those people tend to be very passionate about what they do. They're usually pretty excited about what they do. And, and it aligns with their values. It aligns with their personal interests. Now, let me make a distinction here. If you have a passion that you've cultivated over the years, that's great. And it may not have anything to do with how you earn a paycheck whatsoever. The confluence of your passion and earning money off of that is generally how I would describe a mission. If you're able to make a living off of your passion, then you have found your mission in life. But your mission tends to align with who you are as a person. And so you have to ask yourself some, some questions here. You know, does this align with my values? Does this position, whatever it may be, and, and you, you talked about banking versus creativity, it sounds to me like it may not align with your desires, with your interests, and you may not find a whole lot of meaning in, in a banking job. And if so, now would be a really good time to consider not going down that road and, and pursuing something else. Because once you get into a, a position where it, you've made something your career, it becomes very comfortable. And as things get comfortable, it's hard for us to put ourselves in what I call our discomfort zone. And, and if you're not uncomfortable from time to time, you're going to stop growing. And careers, often long-term careers, prevent us from growing because on a scale of 1 to 10, we don't hate the job. Like I know even when I had my career for uh, 12 years, uh, back in, in the telecom world and managing a whole bunch of employees, I didn't hate my job. There, there were certain parts that were miserable, but overall, I wouldn't have told you that I hated the job, Brian. Now, now, what I would have said, though, is it doesn't necessarily align with who I am, but it provides me a, a comfortable paycheck. I make a good living, and it was a five or six out of ten, and that that place is dangerous because it prevents us from making a change that's going to be far more meaningful. So as you're asking yourself some questions, Jack, ask yourself some questions that are going to make you uncomfortable. What is 
my my passion? Um, does this career align with my values? Can I cultivate this into a passion? And if so, can I turn it into my mission? Uh, I'm going to talk about the obverse of that for a second. Let's say that Jack does decide to start a career, which you know we're not going to tell you to or not to do that. But let's say that you you look you're looking at this career. I'm going to start this. The question I would be asking myself is, am I going to have time to cultivate passion? Am I, am I going to have time to cultivate these hobbies? Because if you're getting out of college, yes, you're going to have to find a job. You're going to have to eventually start paying back all those student loans. Um, you might have to have a job temporarily, but you can still be very deliberate with the job you choose. You're in a great position right now uh, to be deliberate with that, to make sure that you're choosing something that allows you to uh, have the time to cultivate your values and beliefs. And speaking, Jack, to your question about do you need to make money from your passion? I'm going to quote Stephen Pressfield. He said, the professional has learned that success, like happiness, comes as a byproduct of work. The professional concentrates on the work and allows rewards to come or not come. So what that means to me is that if you're truly passionate about something, no, you don't have to make money from it. Uh, It would be great if everyone in the world could find a passion and make money from that and make a living from that, but that is not necessarily uh, the the end-all, be-all for every single person. So don't feel pressure uh, to make money from your passion. In fact, I would say if if anyone out there is putting pressure on themselves to make money from a passion, uh, that's a very dangerous approach. Because you could ruin what you're passionate about by putting pressure on yourself to make money from it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. In fact, pursuing your passion should be independent of income. The, the cool thing is, if you are passionate about something or you're thinking about cultivating something into a passion, you can find other people who do make a living off of that. You know, if you know some, if you're really passionate about training horses or just horseback riding. There is someone who makes a living off of that. There's no question about that. Right. And, and then all you have to do is identify what's their model, what's their template, what's their recipe for earning a living off of that. Let me cultivate into a passion first. For me, writing is my passion. It's what I'm most passionate about. But I wrote for you know, more than a dozen years before I, I was able to, to turn that into my mission and make a lot of, of uh, uh, changes in my life that allowed me to at least start to make a little bit of income from it in time. And, and so I cultivated that passion first, eventually in time, was able to turn it into my mission where I did earn a living from it. But would I still write if I didn't make a penny from it? You're damn right I would because it's something that I'm, that I'm really passionate about and it's something that, that will carry me forward going forward. Now, Jack, you mentioned the word cushy, cushy bank job. I would tell you to avoid anything that's cushy. Mm. Passion is not cushy. Mm-mm. Passion often involves hard work, tedium, drudgery, getting past the, the parts that seem sexy or exciting to you and moving forward to something that is meaningful. Meaningful does not include the word cushy. Our next voicemail is from Jeremiah, who's also in Denver. I feel like making the leap and uh, potentially quit my job and just change my life completely, but health insurance is a big hang-up, and I was curious what your guys' thoughts were on that or what the solutions you guys come up with on that. Thoughts on health insurance. Um, Jeremiah, it is, it's the law to have health insurance, so this is certainly a, a very valid question. Um, your question is, 
how do you have health insurance if you leave your job? There are tools in place um, for people who may not be able to afford health care. I'm not saying that uh, tools like Medicaid is like the best option out there, but there are these fail-safes in place in the United States for folks who cannot afford insurance. So that is, I, I guess that is my way of saying there is something in place for you that will give you the coverage uh, or the minimum coverage that you need. Um, other other than that, uh, yeah, I mean, you can certainly go out and get individual plans. They are expensive, and those will have to be budgeted for. I know my my insurance is about, I don't, it's like two hundred ten bucks a month now. It went up like fifty or sixty bucks from last year, but but yeah, I mean, that's two hundred bucks a month that I have to to budget for, and there are certain things that I may have to give up that month to, to pay for my insurance. Yeah, I mean, I look at when I look at my bills and, and, and really paring down my bills before I made the leap. Here's the thing, Jeremiah, if you are looking at making a leap and health insurance is your biggest barrier right now, just make the freaking leap, man. The, this, is, this is an easy one to deal with because it's part of what your budget needs to be. And so my, my biggest things that I budgeted for when I made the leap was rent, uh, utilities, and insurance. Uh, health insurance obviously covered it in that, and and I had to budget accordingly so that I, I knew exactly how much money I needed every single month in order to to make a make ends meet, and and so if that is your biggest barrier, you are in, in a phenomenal position. Uh, like Ryan said, there are certainly tools out there. I mean, whether it's at least in the United States, so this is going to be different country by country, and we have people from about a hundred and. 70 countries listening to this, but a uh, majority of you are in the United States. Uh, if you're in, in Canada or, or the UK, then you have universal health care and different options there. Here uh, in the United States, we have um, this individual mandate is what it's called, uh, meaning we all have to have health insurance. Otherwise, you, you get a penalty. And so you can go to healthcare.gov and, and, and figure that out, or you can find, uh, in, like in, we're in Montana. I, I go through a company called Montana Health Co-op, and, and there are several others, you know, so there's competition in an area as well. And yes, uh, you're going to want to get the coverage that is going to apply to you specifically. If you're relatively young, relatively healthy, you can get a very high deductible plan that covers you for emergencies. If you're not going to the doctor a whole lot, that is your best bet. And so find the plan that is right for you, but don't let this small speed bump along the way it might slow you down right now, but you'll get right over it, and you can move on to something more meaningful. Uh, there are, are far bigger speed bumps that many other people have. You don't need to stay stuck where you are because you're afraid that you don't have the opportunity for health care elsewhere. In fact, you absolutely have, have an opportunity. And I would encourage you, to, what, you're, you're in Colorado, uh, Jeremiah, uh, I would encourage you to figure out what some of your friends who are self-employed, find some people who are, are self-employed in your area do for health insurance and, and then compare. That way you can have three or four or five different options and, and different scenarios and find which one is, is just right for you. Jody in Sydney, Australia, has a voicemail for us. I'm just wanting to know how you guys went from working full-time corporate jobs to where you are to net today, writing a blog, um, writing books, and doing this podcast. Um, I'm really interested in to know a bit more about that transition. Well, Jody, um, just quit your job and start a blog. That's what we did. 
Yeah, it was pretty simple. I mean, <laughs> we really don't have to work much. And I mean, the nice thing is that riding is, is just really easy. <laughs> and We better stop, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, if anyone ever tells you to quit your job and start a blog, head for the hills. That is the worst advice ever. Um, you know, we're the minimalists. So I'm just going to like give you a really simple answer. Form a plan. And then take massive action on that plan. Now, I'll talk about the first part, forming a plan. Let me tell you about my plan. It was getting rid of the uh, biggest debts that I had. So I started with my condo. I started with my car. I got rid of those debts. Then it started uh, or then it snowballed into the uh, smaller debts that I started to pay off. Uh, I had a budget. I had a savings account that I was contributing to every month. When I eventually um, left my job or got released from my job, I had, uh, it was about six months worth of my bills saved up. And that was enough security for me to at least go out and uh, have to find something else. It gave me six months essentially to to figure things out. So everybody's plan is going to be a little bit different. But let me talk about that second part, taking massive action. That is the biggest part of this equation. And I'm not talking about coming up with a budget. That's action. Actually sticking to that budget, that is massive action. There is a difference between wanting to work out and then you know looking up gyms in your area and then actually getting up and going to the gym. So I would consider massive action anything that moves you forward, moves you closer towards your uh, ultimate outcome there. Yeah, and you know it's funny because Ryan, we we have people ask us all the time, and I think it's a, it's a very strange question to ask. How do you guys make money? And I I don't generally ask that question of people. Like I don't walk up to someone and yeah. say, "Hey, how do you make money?" Or if someone you, asked me the other day, well, "How do your friends in Missoula make money?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I've never asked them right. how they make money." <laughs> and and so it's a strange thing. And I think what what they're really saying is, you know, "What's your recipe?" Because I would like to figure out how right. to be an entrepreneur as well. Mm-hmm. And here's what I'll say: is Ryan and I do a lot of different things to make money. The difference now from now compared to when we were in the corporate world is everything we do to make an income uh, aligns with who we are and, and what we believe in. And so I teach a writing class online. Uh, that's one way that, that I make money. I We write. We've written uh, three books together. I've also written a novel called As a Decade Fades, mm-hmm. and I've certainly made money off of those. And I don't feel bad about any of the ways that I, that I make money because I know every single way that I make money and in fact, when someone says, what's the best way to make money online? I'll say, well, it's not just online. The best way to make money in general is to add value to other people's lives right. in a disproportionate amount. So for my writing class, I charge several hundred dollars for that writing class, but I, I go out of my way to add about two to $3,000 worth of value in that writing class. And so there's no dispute. As, as long as you're willing to put in the work, you're going to get way more than what you paid for. Same with our books. If a book is you know, $15, I want want you to get way more than $15 worth of value. And then I also want you to be able to pass that book on to someone else, minimize it after you've gotten some, some value out of it as well. And, and so going through that, but also, so Ryan, you have a lot of 
uh, mentoring clients. When, I mean, that's another way that you make money. But sure. a lot of your your clients will will approach you and say, "Hey, I want to do just what you did. Mm. I want to. I want to because they all they see is the end result. Right? And they see the tip of the iceberg, but they don't see everything that went. That they don't see the actual size of that iceberg. They don't see all the drudgery that we've gone through. They don't see the fourteen hour days of writing to to get a book out there. The one hundred city tour where you leave your loved ones and friends for ten months." To, to go across the world. Right. And and while that sounds cool on the surface, well, wow, hundred city tour, eight countries. That that was awesome. It was great, but it also had a, a lot of opportunity costs that, that were associated right. with that. And everything that led up to that, whether it's making a documentary or it's writing a book or writing for the blog or recording this podcast, like like right now, um, uh, we're, we're we're recording this, and, and uh, I'm in the middle of a ton of different things right now, and I I don't. It'd very be very easy for me to justify. I don't have time to record this podcast right now, mm-hmm. but I made it a priority because I'm, I'm in the middle of, of moving to a new residence right now. Um, <clears throat> like I said, Ella and, and Becca have been fairly sick, so I'm not feeling top notch. And we have a bunch of other stuff going on with the documentary that we're trying to iron out right now. But we had to schedule this accordingly and and really make it a priority. And it's hard for people to see everything that goes into that end result. Because when people come up to you, Ryan, and they say, you know, I I really want to do what you did. Uh, the question is, do you really? Yeah. Because yeah. do, do you know what you're getting yourself into? Show me how to do what you did. And I'm like, well, okay, I can do that, but this is not a recipe that it really can't be replicated. I mean, there are ingredients there that certainly people could use, mm-hmm. but I mean, no one can replicate uh, how you and I and I, each other's recipes. You right. and I could not replicate each other's recipes. Right, because you and done. I are an ingredient in the recipe. Absolutely, yeah. And you are your own ingredient. And so so if you're making your own recipe, it's like, well, what am I going to go well with in this recipe? Are, are there people who make uh, make money off of blogging or, or writing books or whatever? Sure. And you can take, you could tweeze out ingredients from their recipe and, and, and find their own. But Whatever you're trying to do, make sure it aligns with who you are. Make sure it aligns with your values. Is this what I want to do longer term? And don't be focused on what you uh, on making an income from it. When yeah. I first left the corporate world, my initial plan was to be a barista and and to write fiction full time in, in all of my off hours. This whole minimalists.com thing is a beautiful accident and I'm really glad it worked out. I never had any intention on writing a bunch of nonfiction. I didn't even know what a blog was at the time, but when Ryan came to me with this idea of maybe we can share this story of minimalism with other people, I thought it was a good idea because I could exercise my writing chops and it would allow me to grow in a different way. But just starting a blog and starting to write on it, yeah, that's a great way to to express yourself and to communicate with others. And over time, you'll get you'll get good at it. Uh, if you want to see Ryan's recipe and my recipe for starting a blog, which had nothing to do with earning a living uh, uh, up front, you can just go to theminimalists.com slash blog. We, we wrote out our whole process A to Z uh, in an essay there called How to Start a Successful Blog Today. Yeah, I just want to stress the the importance of uh, doing the work towards your passion or your mission without the expectation of income. I mean, 
for that first year that we had the minimalists.com, we didn't sell anything. It right. was, we were literally just writing essays Yeah, and it wasn't until a year later where we were like, Oh wow. Like we could probably write a book. And so many people started, I mean, there was demand. People were yeah. asking, do you guys have a book? Have yeah. you written a book? And it was like, well, no. And so what we had done in order to reach that critical mass was we had added enough value to enough people's lives that we we got to a point where they were willing to support us if we did have a creative endeavor that that we wanted to embark on. Generally, people get that wrong. They start with the, I, here is my business product idea, which is great in, in many scenarios, and it works well. But for me, it was first about if we wanted to build an audience in particular, it, and we wanted to, to really add value to other people's lives, it was go way out of your way to add value to other people's lives. The money will come in secondarily mm-hmm. to that. Uh, Kevin Kelly wrote about the 1,000 true fans. Sean, can you put that in, in the show notes as well? Uh, so he has this whole philosophy on, on the thousand true fans that I would encourage folks to read. It's a it's a quick essay that uh, that he wrote about reaching a a amount of people who are are raving fans and are willing to support support your work uh, no matter what. But let's not put the money first there. Put your passion first. Find a way to cultivate it. Find a way to add value to other people's lives, and then eventually you can turn that passion into a mission. And also be willing to change. I have become vehicle agnostic over over the last five and a half years. See, I used to just want to write books. I loved reading books. I wanted to write books. I wanted to be an author and write books. That's all I wanted to do was write books. But here, here's the truth. Not everyone gets value from books. And so while we'll write books, and a lot of people have gotten a ton of value from those, we also write a blog. We do some videos on YouTube. We have social media channels, whether it's Facebook or Instagram. We add value to people's lives uh, that way with you know, inspirational quotes or tweeting different articles that people find value in or sharing them on Facebook. And now we're doing a podcast, which is another vehicle to add value to other people's lives. Now, we didn't do all these things at once. So here are the eight things we're going to do to add value to people's lives. No, you start with one thing and you move on to the next thing. The next thing that Ryan and I are doing is we have a documentary coming out. And we interviewed everything from minimalist families and minimalist architects and designers and authors to neuroscientists and economists and found another way to share a bunch of different recipes with people. Again, this is another way to add value to people's lives. And then what tends to happen is the money comes in secondary to that. Yeah. And those of you who are scared of the money, scared of, uh, you know, how am I going to, how am I going to afford to leave my job and do something else? If you're buried in debt, You've gotta you've gotta read Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey. That is another recipe that you can totally look at and mimic. It's a I wish I actually would have used that from the very beginning when I was making my transition. Um, I kind of did. I kind of did the snowball thing in, in the savings account. Um, but he he does a much better job of uh, of kind of forcing people to to realize that they do have the power to change their lives uh, financially and and become financially free. Totally agree. And we also have an essay at our website. If you want to see my exact plan for, well, it's called Financial Freedom, Five Difficult Steps to Get Out of Debt and Create a Simple Budget Plan for the Future and Regain Control of Your Finances, which is a very long title to basically say, it's not easy. It, and and it, that's why I didn't want this to be hyperbolic. It's five difficult steps. It is difficult to go where you're going, but difficult tends to lead to something that is far more meaningful. The opposite of that is going with the flow. And if you're only going with the flow, it sounds nice right now, but eventually you're going to end up at the falls, and then you're in for a world of hurt. 
Kelsey in Maryland has a question for us. I'm having difficulty deciding what to do career-wise, um, and that comes from other points of when I was in high school, I at that time had to go to college, and I did the one thing that I loved at that time, which was art, and, and became an art major, and very quickly found that that wasn't really what I wanted to do, finished the career, and didn't really do things for several years, and eventually cultivated my new passion, which was nutrition. And so for the past several years, I have been working on credits for graduate school to become a uh, certified nutritionist so I can actually apply and become a certified nutritionist. But now that after years of working on that, now that I'm getting to that point, I find myself doubting or questioning where to go in this career um, or not where to go, but whether that's really the career I want. I'm notorious for being passionate about something for a little bit and then changing my mind. And so I wanted to ask, you know, how do you really decide when you're trying to make a big decision and committing to something such as your career? Kelsey, um, you know, I think, well, first off, I think you sound a lot like me. Like I am the same way. Like right now, if you were to ask me what I was most passionate about, I would probably say snowboarding. That is right now what I absolutely, I get on the mountain and I freaking love it. I'm also passionate about talking about minimalism and I'm also passionate about this documentary we have coming out. I'm passionate about a lot of things. Um, so it's very easy to get bored with one thing and move on to another for me. What, what I have found is committing to those passions is what really helps me grow. I'll give you an example. Last uh, snowboarding season, so this was uh, 2014, 2015. The very first time we went out to a resort and got on the chairlift, it was so cold. It was miserable. I'm like, God, this is going to be a really cold, bad day. We came down the mountain. I was exhausted, got back on the chairlift, and literally was questioning why in the hell do I put myself through all of this misery for this sport that I'm never going to be professional at, or I'm never going to make money from this. Why do I put so much time and effort into this? And it was in that moment that I'm like, you know, you get a lot of enjoyment from this, Ryan. There is a lot of times you get enjoyment from this. And this is really difficult right now. And yes, when you fall and sprain your knee or crack a rib or whatever other injuries I've had snowboarding. <laughs> Man, you have so many injuries snowboarding. That's not what this conversation is about. <laughs> um, <laughs> it kind of is though, right? Well, I, I guess it is. But, but, uh, but I put myself through that because I know that at the end of the day, being uh, on top of the mountain, you know, cutting a nice line through the trees hitting some gnar pow. I mean, like w w there are moments when I am just like so elated and that is what I focus on. I mean, even, even in this hobby that I have, I still have to drudge through the drudgery. So that said, Kelsey, I would encourage you to go into this field that you have cultivated a passion for. Are you going to be passionate about this a year from now? I don't know, maybe or maybe not, but I think you owe it to yourself to at least complete, to finish what you have already started. So I would certainly encourage you to at least, uh, uh, at least start, start down that path. And then if you find yourself getting bored in a year, I mean, ask yourself what you really love doing. To me, it sounds like you love to learn. You, you've got two degrees now. It sounds like you really have a, have a passion for learning. You can do that 
uh, and still have a job or a career or a mission. You can still learn in your spare time. There are things that you can do that will still help cultivate uh, that passion. So take that uh, for what it is, do whatever you want, but uh, I would certainly encourage you to finish what you started. You know, the, the metaphor there, the accidental metaphor about Ryan, you're passionate about snowboarding, but there are a lot of injuries involved in that. And I think sometimes our passion will injure us in, in other ways. For you, it happens to be you know, physically. <laughs> For me, it's uh, writing is difficult, and, and I love it about half the time. But the other half of the time, I want to put my head through a wall. It, it hurts in, in a different way. And when it's not going well, it just seems like the world is crumbling down around me. And when it is going well, there's no better feeling uh, in the world. And and so I think that's an appropriate metaphor. Maybe in order to be passionate about something, it has to injure you in, in some way. Now, uh, what, what I would encourage Kelsey to look at, though, before she makes that, that decision to, to keep plowing forward is make sure this is something you're passionate about. The question to ask yourself is, Am I confusing excitement with passion? I think the I think that excitement is often the enemy of passion. We get really excited about an idea or a new project or a potential new passion or a new hobby, and that seems really great. And for me, it was with writing, I would get really excited about a new short story idea or a new novel, idea, especially with novels. I, I've got this great idea for a novel. Do you know how hard it is to write a novel? I do because I spent eight years writing one. And you know what? What I learned is I was mistaking excitement. I've got this great idea for a novel, but then I'd go work on it for a day, a week, two weeks, and and then the excitement would wane. And I'd be like, oh, obviously I'm not very passionate about this. And I'd move on to the next thing. And I'm really, really excited about this. And then it would dip, and I, I would move on to the next thing. And that is... That's like channel surfing. You're not going to find anything meaningful if you just keep changing the channel. Real passion comes after you're willing to put in the work. Real passion comes from drudging through the drudgery, getting to the other side of that drudgery, the other side of that tedium, the other side of what seems mundane in the moment. That's finding real passion. That's where the real payoff is. So, Kelsey, if you feel like this is something that does align with who you are, then I would agree with Ryan. Jump into it, jump all the way in, and be willing to give it your all. But when it gets dull, when it gets tedious, know you have to keep pushing through. But if you push through enough and you're not seeing any payoff and you keep pushing through and there's still no payoff, also be willing to quit and move on. Mm. Here's the other part of that. Sometimes you'll be passionate about something, and then you'll be passionate about something else later on in life. If we're lucky, we have eight and a half decades on this earth, and we have time for more than one passion over our lifetime. And so the thing that you're passionate about now, you may not be passionate about 10 years from now, and you may need to cultivate a new passion. You may, it may be time for a new season in your life, because after winter comes spring, after spring comes summer, and as those changes happen, we can either embrace them or you know, we can keep wearing our winter coat in the blazing hot summer sun and try to act like things aren't changing. But that's not going to be good for any of us. So as things change, be willing to embrace new passions, be willing to jump in head first and, and embrace that for the, that season that it is uh, both exciting and passionate in your life. Our next voicemail is from Patrick in St. Louis. What do you do when your uh, minimalism conflicts with the goals of your career? 
So, for example, uh, my girlfriend is a museum archivist. Um, she has been trained to basically preserve everything that she can, um, and that mindset has infiltrated into her personal life. I can also see this being a problem uh, with people who work in offices, uh, accountants, people who need to uh, save and save and save everything in uh, their workspace because it's mandatory for record keeping. How do you make sure that those uh, kind of ideals and ideologies don't conflict and infiltrate your personal life? The first question I would ask myself is, does it really conflict? Does minimalism actually conflict with this career or this mission, this passion you're pursuing, this thing that you're earning a living from? Does it actually con conflict? And in this case, I would argue that no, absolutely not. I mean, what is a museum? A museum is a well-curated entity. It is this building with the most curated bits of whatever you're trying to, to show to the world. To me, that is a metaphor for minimalism. A museum is intentional curation uh, of the things that need to be displayed most. That is what is essential in a museum. And the best museums are the best curated museums. And so to me, it seems that, that a museum is the perfect metaphor for minimalism. In terms of uh, an accountant or a CPA or someone who has to sort of hoard documents, there are ways to do that in a more intentional way. The way that I do it is twofold. One is I try to bring as few things into my life as possible up front. The easiest way to organize the things is to not have those things in the first place. And that way you don't have to sort of de decoct them and do triage and sort them into their ordinal bin systems. Y you have uh, a way to filter them out before they ever get in in the first place. But when it comes to paperwork, the few things I do bring in, I'm able to save those digitally and, 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 and save those files in a way that isn't going to take up additional space in my life because it's going to be out there in, in the cloud. So uh, whether it's for you, Patrick, or your significant other, what I would say is ask better questions and ask them more frequently. Do I need to bring this into my life? Does this align with who I am? And if you're asking these questions over and over and over, they become habitual, and the things you bring into your life will align with, uh, with what you're passionate about. Yeah, and if this attitude is spilling over into your household, uh, if it was me, I would have to set boundaries. I mean, if I was uh, a museum archivist, then I would, uh, and I saw myself wanting to start to hang on to all these family heirlooms and uh, all these souvenirs or whatever it may be, I would have to set some clear boundaries for myself. Uh, I would have to, you know, maybe, okay, I'm only going to take in one or two uh, sentimental items and, and hold on to those. Uh, whatever the rules may be, I don't, I don't have exactly those rules in place right now. But whatever boundaries work for you and your household, I would encourage you to have a conversation um, with, your, with your girlfriend about that. And then, you know, for me, if I was like a, an accountant or uh, someone who had to keep track of a horde of things because it was important to hold on to for whatever reason, I would have to work on that every single day of my life because I'm not a great uh, organizer. You know that yeah, I'm typically five minutes late to places and, uh, oh, yeah, that's on the schedule. Totally forgot about that. So I, I have to really work hard to keep my life organized. And if I was in a job like that, every single day I would have to uh, focus on keeping what's necessary and getting rid of what wasn't. 
Our next question is from Rahin in Toronto. I've been talking to uh, people, like adults recently, and they've been talking about their jobs, and I've been really looking into careers, and I'm wondering, there's this common theme that people, even jobs that they go into that they're passionate about, like that passion kind of withers away, and eventually uh, the passion becomes a job. It's kind of like you can't really escape that monotonous nature, the daily routine. So I was wondering, how do you deal with that? And is this the case for all jobs that once people are passionate, they kind of lose the passion? You'll often lose your passion if you've grown comfortable with what you're doing. The, a synonym for comfort is stagnant. And if you get stagnant, then by definition, you're not growing, you're not moving. If you're not growing, then you're dying. And, and so what will happen is someone gets really excited about an idea, a project, a career, a career path, a direction, a goal, and then they attain that goal and they wonder, well, what's next? And, and you always have to find what is next in, in order for you to be able to grow and grow in the moment. And I think that that's an, to make it's important to make that distinction. Am I able to enjoy this journey as I'm headed headed in that direction? Because there's obviously the cliche that the journey is the destination. But it's important to keep in mind that we do need to in, enjoy what we're doing, but it's not going to be comfortable all the time. And so be willing to, to let go of the idea of needing it to be comfortable. But also, uh, Rahin, I, I, would, I would say congratulations for asking this question so young. You, you're 16 years old, and, and this is the right time to be asking this question because uh, the average person in North America will change careers seven times in his or her lifetime. Now, that's not changed jobs. That's changed complete different industries seven times over your lifetime. So you have that to look forward to. That is good news to me because that means you're not stuck on one path for the rest of your life. Do something now that you're passionate about. Allow that, however, to change over time. And I do want to recommend a book to you because I think this will help you identify uh, the thing to cultivate into a passion now and be willing to put in the work uh, that, that is necessary to, to actually cultivate that. It's a, a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, and we will throw a link to that in our show notes as well. Our next question is from Rick in Kansas. I'm about to undergo spine surgery, and I'm being faced with the loss of my job and profession, um, which puts me at a at an interesting crossroads today. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do if I do lose this job, and and I I, I find myself asking some very basic questions about security. Uh, what kinds of job protections do I need moving forward? Uh, what do I need in terms of of retirement later on, um, and do I have the luxury of minimizing the sort of full-time uh, career that that I has 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 grown that I've grown to sort of uh, disdain over the course of my life? Um, and I don't really know the answers to those questions, and I wrestle with them every day. Uh, I, I I don't know how to find a balance between security and passion. In the midst of a health crisis, let's first say this. I understand where you are in more ways than one: mm-hmm. uh, the loss of a job or change of a career, but also the the whole back thing. Where you've got a lot of issues with your back, you're considering 
uh, uh, back surgery. And obviously, I can't tell you what to do there. I'm personally avoiding back surgery right now. I have a, um, what's called spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis uh, of uh, my L5 is, is basically messed up. It's broken and, and pushed forward. And uh, I also have sciatica. So I have a lot of issues I'm dealing with with my back. And um, I'm going through physical therapy five, six days a week. And, and um, I can understand not having that part of your health, how that can put everything else into question, especially if it's forcing you to change your career. But the good news is this is the perfect time to start asking tough questions. It sounds to me like you're, you're miserable. So I'm going to say congrats on being forced to, to turn uh, in a different direction here because you, you mentioned not being satisfied in, in, in the cur- current career that you're in. This is the perfect time to start asking tough questions. And, and, and you're not going to get easy answers from these tough questions, questions about what do I want to do with the next five, 10 years of my life? What am I passionate about? What are actually my values? It took Ryan and I, we had to remove all of the excess stuff from our lives and, and start focusing on, okay, what, what are our values? What are the anchors we're going to get out of the way? And then what should I be focused on? And so uh, Rick, I'm going to send you a copy of our, our first book, Everything That Remains. And we talk about the, the five values in there, health, relationships, passion, which whole chapter on passion or career, creativity, and then uh, growth and, and contribution. And I The would book's inc- actually called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. What did I say? <laughs> Everything That Remains. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't want him to get you know, a book in the mail. Uh, that w- <laughs> He was like, wait a minute, this isn't everything that remains. Oh, yeah. Um, well, let's send him both, Sean, since I <laughs> promised him everything that remains. Everything that remains was, was our, our second book. That's a memoir. That's the why-to book. Minimalism is more of the, the what-to book. Thank you for interrupting me. Um, uh, and then I have an essay uh, that I want to read to you because, for me, there was a big <sighs> misnomer in my life, and it was called Security. And I have some thoughts on security. In fact, this essay from Ryan and myself is called Security is a Misnomer. We are but dogs, leashed by fear, thrashing in the collars of our own obligations. People often hang on to things, jobs, relationships, material possessions, in an effort to feel secure. Unfortunately, many of the things we cling to in search of security, actually drain the satisfaction from our lives, leaving us discontented and overwhelmed. We hold on to jobs we dislike because we believe that there's security in a paycheck. We stay in shitty relationships because we think there's security in not being alone. We hold on on to stuff we don't need just in case we might need it down the road in some non-existent, more secure future. But if such accoutrements are flooding your life with discontent, they are not secure. In fact, the opposite is true. Discontent is uncertainty, and uncertainty is insecurity. Hence, by definition, if you are not happy with your situation, no matter how comfortable it is, then you won't ever feel secure. Take, for example, us, Joshua and Ryan. We both embraced the ostensible security of prestigious careers and all of the cold trappings of our entropic consumer culture. 
The supersized houses, the steady paychecks, the pacifying material possessions. We'd purchased all the purchases, accumulated all the accumulations, and achieved all the achievements that were supposed to make us feel secure. So why didn't we experience real security then? Why were we glazed with discontent and stress and depression? Because we had more to lose. We constructed well-decorated walls that we were terrified to tear down, becoming prisoners of our own consumption, our lifestyles equipped with a laundry list of unquestioned desires anchored us to our self-built burdens. We thought we knew what we wanted, but we didn't know why we wanted it. It turned out that our paychecks made us feel less secure afraid that we'd be deprived of the income we'd grown accustomed to and the lifestyle we'd blindly coveted, and our material possessions exposed countless twinges of insecurity, leaving us frightened that we'd suffer loss of personal property or that someone would take it from us, so we clinched tighter to these security blankets. But you see, it is not the security blanket that ensures the person's security. People latch on to security blankets because there's a deeper fear lingering at the ragged edges of a discontented reality. There's something else we're afraid of, the fear of loss. We're afraid of losing love or respect or comfort. It is this fear that keeps us tied to mediocrity. We're willing to sacrifice growth and purpose and meaning in our lives, just to hold on to our pacifiers, all the while searching all the wrong places for security, misguidedly programming ourselves to believe that there's a strange kind of certainty within uncertainty. But the more we amass, the more we need our stockpile, and then the more uncertain we feel. Needing more will always lead to a pall of uncertainty and insecurity. Life isn't meant to be completely safe. Real security, however, is found inside us, in consistent personal growth, not in a reliance on growing external factors. Once we extinguish our outside requirements for the things that won't ever make us truly secure, a fat paycheck, a sybaritic relationship, a shiny new widget, we can shepherd our focus toward what's going on inside us, no longer worshiping the things around us. Sure, we all need a particular level of external security to function. Food, water, shelter, clothes, health, personal safety, positive relationships. But if we jettison life's superfluous excess, we can find infinite security within ourselves. Security blanket or no, we can be absolutely secure alone in an empty room. You can find that essay over at theminimalists.com slash security. The one thing, Rick, I would encourage you not to do is nothing. I know that you are going to be laid down on your back after this surgery, and you probably won't be able, be able to get out of bed for a while. Uh, the worst thing you can do is just lay there and watch TV. Read, read some books that uh, you've always wanted to read, or if you have some hobbies or a potential passion that you want to cultivate, get some books on those. Uh, you can do research on Google and see what different careers are out there or, or, or missions are out there that you can uh, maybe start diving into. And uh, you could even pick up the phone and, and start calling uh, random random places to see what their what their jobs are like and how they like them. Uh, I had a 
mentoring client who like the UPS guy came to his door and he was like, Hey, can I talk to you about your job? And he was just interested in how do you like working for UPS? Or, uh, I've had other clients call up, uh, nonprofit, uh, CEOs and, and, and talk to them about, you know, how it is to be a CEO of a nonprofit. So I'm just throwing those ideas out there, uh, to, to give you, so you're not just laid up in bed, uh, not making use of, of this downtime that you have. I love that because Ryan, if you don't ask those questions, you'll never know. And, you may have the UPS driver who is utterly, uh, profoundly passionate about what he does. And my guess is there are many UPS drivers that are that way. There are also many UPS drivers that hate what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's because it doesn't align with what their beliefs are. And and they probably would be better served doing something else. Uh, but also approach it with, with just this positive mental attitude. Our, our friend Stan, that was his... His big two cents for everything, everything he did, he approached with a, a positive mental attitude, and he lived an amazing life. He, he died a couple of years ago, um, which we wrote about, but one of the things that, that I took from my long-time friendship with him is approach things with a positive manner because it's easy for us to give ourselves these negative self-incantations. Uh, I suck. Why do I suck so bad? Why am I such a loser? Those are bad questions. And we need to start asking better questions, whether it's of other people or of ourselves. Yeah, I I could not agree with that more, man. In fact, um, I was reading this book uh, over the weekend, and it was talking about how every negative situation is negative if, if you make it that way. But if you're looking for a positive uh, spin on it, there there will always be a positive spin. And if it's not always, it'll be 99% of the time. I mean, you know, in this situation, like this, Rick, like I am so sorry you're in this situation, man. Like I would not wish that upon anyone. Um, this is, you know, could potentially be a negative situation. But, you know, the positive spin on it is you are going to be forced to stay in one place and you're going to have all this uh, time uh, on your hands. And what you do with that time could be a very positive thing. It may, may make a huge shift in your life. It could be a huge opportunity for you to pivot, even slightly. A, a pivot, if you pivot 15 degrees in one direction, if you think about a boat that's out at sea and they make a 15 degree pivot, it doesn't seem like much up front, but a month from now, you're in an utterly different location, maybe yeah. even a different hemisphere. And and so whether that's a month from now, a year from now, my guess is, Rick, you'll be in a, a radically different place. And if you take this opportunity to pivot in the direction you want to pivot, you'll be in the place that you want to be. Our next voicemail is from Vincent in Brussels. How do you feel about ambition? Are you ambition in different ways now in contrast with your corporate years? And as minimalists, how do you convey ambition towards others? Vincent, it's not ambition that sets a man apart. It is the distance he is prepared to go. And when I think about being ambitious in America, it tends to be a compliment uh, towards someone. We have to be careful not to let our ambitions get in the way. I, for the longest time, let my ambitions get in the way of what was truly meaningful to me. And so I climbed the corporate ladder very fast. At age 27, I was the youngest director in my company's 140-year history. And I had a lot of ambitions. I had a full plan to be a vice president by age 32, a senior vice president by age 35, a C-level executive by age 40. And, and those were lofty ambitions. 
but that got in the way of my health. It got in the way of the people closest to me. And so my ambitions became roadblocks. But here's what I'll say. If your ambitions are directed accordingly, if, if they do align with who you want to be and that person you want to become, then it's not just about your ambition. It's about the distance you're prepared to go toward that ambition. And, and if you just have the ambition, that's like having... Uh, a very strong aspiration. The aspiration alone will not allow you to achieve what you want to achieve. What will allow you to achieve that isn't the goal itself, but the action you take toward whatever you're aspiring toward. And and so, no, I, w- I would say don't let your ambition fog or, or cloud what that that which is meaningful in your life. And if you're looking for some sort of formula or outcome uh, to to reach the direction that you're going. We have an essay in our book, Essentials. So, uh, Vincent, I'd love to send you a, a copy of that. And we just basically go through uh, what's what Tony Robbins would call the ultimate success formula, uh, I think. Ask four questions of yourself. What's my outcome? Why do I want this outcome? That's going to give you enough leverage. And then what actions must I take to get this outcome? And then ultimately, is this working? Is my strategy working? Because here's the thing. You can ask those first three questions as, okay, what do I want? Why do I want it's the second question. What am I going to do to get this is the third question. But if you don't get it and you keep trying the same thing over and over, there's a definition of insanity, right? So be willing to adjust your strategy accordingly. And so we have an essay in our book, Essential, that outlines that. There's a whole chapter in there about uh, passion, career, etc. And I hope you find some value in that, Vincent. Yeah, I would just add that if it wasn't for my ambition – towards living a more meaningful life, I don't think I ever would have gotten here. I mean, if it wasn't for that focus, if it wasn't for that drive. so Having the right ambition is important, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it can be a good or a bad thing. All right, Joe, we would love to hear what you have to say. So if you have a comment about jobs, careers, passion, mission, etc., including minimalism tips for how you you make money or uh, pursue your passion, cultivate your passion, then leave us a voicemail at 406-219-7839. We'll air our our favorite comments and favorite tips on the next episode. And if we select your voicemail, we'll send you an autographed copy of one of our books, either Essential or Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, or my personal favorite, Everything That Remains. I would love to hear someone call in and tell us about how they found their passion. Cause you know, it's always you and I talking about how, you know, we have cultivated our passions. I would really love to see how uh, someone else has done that. So yeah, call in with your comments, please. All right, let's move on to our iTunes comment of the week. This comment is titled words for feels. And it's <laughs> brought to you by intergalactic Jess. Man, that is, that is a strong such a, name. That is such a cool name. That's so strong. Intergalactic Jess writes, Have you ever known how something feels and never thought to put it into words? Have you ever walked into a room that's free of clutter or made a decision with complete clarity or had a relationship which brings you joy? The concepts these guys capture put into words how that freedom feels. Everyone knows how amazing minimalism feels, but so few people take the time to truly think about why following these principles is so liberating. Listening to this podcast will help you to live more intentionally 
bringing in those things which bring you joy and feeling free to move on from those things that don't. I'm so happy I found this podcast when I did. I just received an offer to become partner in my business and help it expand. Everyone told me that I was so lucky being only 24 to receive such a huge opportunity to make so much money. Even though the offer was appealing, when I listened to my heart, I knew that I had to decline and pursue a life which was meaningful to me, not just an offer that makes me sound impressive to the people around me. If I didn't know Josh and Ryan's story, I don't know if I would have been able to follow my values with such certainty. Thank you for such an amazing podcast and for using your story to inspire others to cultivate their passions and live life to the fullest. Man, I got to say, like, in encouraging, helping, whatever word you want to insert there with, like, these young folks, like, 24-year-old intergalactic Jess. Yes. Uh, her name has an exclamation mark in it, by the way. Is that what you're saying like that? Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> and uh, the, the 16-year-old gentleman, uh, Rahin from uh, Toronto, that, that called us earlier. I mean, that is that is an honor to be able to help out such young folks. I Totally agree. And totally it, encourages me. I, I, I think of my story. I think of two stories. One is my story. When I was 24, I became a, a regional manager for a set of retail stores for the telecom company that Ryan and I worked at. And, you know, it was a huge promotion, youngest regional manager in the company's history. And that job was a job, and it actually turned into a career. And that, that was the, the first huge step in my, my career uh, stepping stone. I'd be, been a manager before then. Um, but, you know, after that, I climbed the next rung of the ladder. When I was 27, I became the director of operations. And that it sounds was, impressive, man. It sounds impressive. And here, here's the problem with that is, you know, Ryan, when you first meet someone, what's the first question you ask? Or, or, or when they, what's the first question they ask you? What do you do? What do you do? How do you make money? What a crappy question, right? Because <laughs> that's really what we're saying. Yeah. It's not like, because it's a really expansive question, right? Uh, the truth, the true answer to that question is, well, I wear blue jeans. I drink water. I walk down the street. I breathe. What do you mean, what do I do? Oh, what you're really asking me is, where do you work? How much money do you own? So I can compare you to me on the socioeconomic ladder. We just don't posit the question that way, because if we posit it that way, we, we sound like a total jerk. And we want to avoid sounding like jerks. And so instead, we say, what do you do? Now, I don't think it's an intentionally uh, malicious question. And I don't think it's an intentional gotcha question. Like, uh, but I think it, it is a, a cultural, a very pernicious cultural and, and social imperative. You're at a networking event or you're at a dinner party or whatever, and you haven't met someone. The icebreaker here is, is what do you do? And I took that promotion at age 27 to director of operations because that's what I was supposed to do. It was the next stop, I step on, on, on the ladder, and I'd be stupid not to take it. You know what, though? I didn't want that job. It was in a corner office, downtown Cincinnati. It's funny, man. I remember when you came to me with that promotion, uh-huh. how you knew you were going to hate it. Yeah. Like, I remember you talking about how miserable it was going to be to work for, uh, to work in that specific position. Yeah. And I remember you specifically saying to me, if I don't do it, man, it's going to be career suicide. Right. And what a stupid term, right? <laughs> like, We've he, come so far. Oh, my goodness. Like, so, so, so career suicide is a good thing for me because that was the problem is my career was comfortable. 
And yes, it was a cushy job in the sense I was still working 70 or 80 hours a week but with and manipulating spreadsheets and managing a small team of people and uh, who manage other people, et cetera. But, but ultimately, I, I learned that that wasn't for me. It didn't align with what I wanted, but it was what I was supposed to do. And that was dangerous because it became part of my identity, who I am as a person. And so the way I changed that, the answer to that question and the way I let go of that identity, when people ask what's the hardest thing that you guys ever had to get rid of, I tend to answer with my identity. And that's not in some Jason Bourne type of way. Like I didn't you know, change the name of my driver's license, but my identity was so wrapped up in in this title. What do you do? I'm the director of operations for 150 retail stores. That's exactly how you said it to me. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I puffed on my pipe and walked away. Yeah. No, I, and, and then, of course, I would say, basically, here's my impressive job title. What's your job title? And, if it, and, and then that determines whether or not it's what, okay to associate with you based on can I use you for something and and using people is a a recipe for disaster. And so I changed, I did an experiment for a year when I was in the corporate world. People asked me, what do you do? Instead of giving them that stock answer, I'd say, I'm really passionate about writing. Now, I didn't say I'm a writer because then you get the accusatory questions, but instead I said, here's what I'm passionate about. And I flipped the question around and say, what are you passionate about? And it would totally change the trajectory of our conversations. We'd spend the next, instead of spending the next 15 minutes talking about, here's what I do to earn a paycheck. What do you do to earn a paycheck? It was, here's what I'm passionate about. And in fact, I, I, I've noticed this with you, Ryan, quite often people will ask you like, uh, what do you do? And, and you just look at him and say, I snowboard. And and they'll look at you because Ryan's, you know, Ryan's, a, he looks like he should be an MMA fighter, not a snowboarder. And, and, uh, um, <laughs> That is not a hobby I'm willing to pick up. <laughs> what, MMA? Yeah, I'm guaranteed yeah. injuries there. Well, yes, yeah, and concussions. But I, I, uh, point being is people look at him like, you make a living? Do, do you make a living from, from, your, from snowboarding? And, and he's like, well, no, that'd be awesome, but I'm just really passionate about snowboarding. That's one of the things I do. And totally changing the direction of your conversation, you'll find that your conversations get much more meaningful over time if you're interested in talking about something you're actually interested in as opposed as something you're passionate about as opposed to what you do to earn a paycheck. Nothing wrong with earning that paycheck, but I'd much rather spend time talking about what I'm passionate about and uncovering what other people are passionate about as well. Uh, the second story that I was really reminded of is uh, – a guy named A.J. Leon, who we interviewed, he's in our documentary, and he tells a story. Uh, a few days before Christmas, he was, uh, uh, he got this huge promotion. He worked on Wall Street, and he was promoted to become a, a junior partner in this firm. And he what, is, went, what do they call it? Minted? Yeah. Was you, that the you, term he You're used? minted because, yeah. you know, you basically get the golden parachute and, and you have, you're set for life in terms of money. And he went back to his office and just weeped because he knew that if he didn't walk away right then in that moment, he was going to be stuck there in that cushy, comfortable position for the rest of his life. And he went down 27 flights of stairs, walked out the door, never went back, uh, grabbed a backpack, and he, he and his wife went and traveled the world. Everything he owns fits in a backpack now and decided to walk away from that huge Wall Street career with $300 in the bank and, and pursue something much more meaningful than, than just a paycheck. There's, there's more to life than, than working really hard to pay for the stuff in our lives. 
we're all going to need some stuff, sure, but it shouldn't be the the main focus of of how we live our our few decades we have on right. this earth. Right, and there may be a lot of people out there, you know, who are passionate working on Wall Street, and that's okay. But AJ realized, like, this is not something I'm passionate about, and he was willing to let it all go. Yeah, it's okay as long as it's you know, morally and ethically okay. Sure, too. absolutely. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, it, it, but it didn't align with what he was doing, and he knew that he could make good money, and that's why he first got into it. But then after he got into it and got on that track, he realized, oh, crap, this is, this is not the path I want to keep going. If I don't walk away right now, I'm going to stay stuck on this path. And so it was time for him to just walk away and and move on to something else. Okay, let's move on to our hashtag Ask the Minimalists lightning round, where we answer questions from social media. We're on uh, Twitter and Instagram, at The Minimalists, and Facebook.com slash The Minimalists. These questions all come from Twitter, Instagram, or, or Facebook, so you can ask us your questions on there. Our first question comes from Paul. Paul asks, how do you find balance between working a job to pay the bills and following your passions? And then Alex adds, especially when you have kids and a side hustle takes from them. You know, uh, first, let's talk to Paul, who didn't mention the kids part. Paul, you really need to reduce your bills uh, so that you're less tied to your job. That's the first thing I really had to do because I was tied to my job because I was tied to a lifestyle. And so if you can change your lifestyle, radically change your lifestyle. And we wrote about this in an essay and talked about it actually on our, our last podcast as well, the, the money episode. But if you want to check out a strategy that will really help you out, it's called uh, Need, Want, Like. If you go to the minimalists.com slash want, that'll show you how to radically reduce your bills and, and, and get you on the right track. Now, in terms of Alex's question, we were talking to our, our trusty producer here, Mr. Sean Harding, who um, I, I sort of became a parent by proxy last year, but Sean has three kids who are all uh, a bunch of different ages. They're all teenagers now, one's in, in uh, his early 20s, and um what what Sean recommended was find ways to bring them into the fold as they get of age. You know, I'm I'm with Ella. Ella's two and a half right now, so I don't really have a way to get her involved in my writing, other than I can write about her. But she can't really be as involved in that process. But as they get older, find ways to bring them into a fold, even if it's for for a short period of time. Uh, with Sean, some of that was was theater or maybe movie making or or finding different ways to to incorporate them into the passion, share the the passion with them. I think an important part of this balance, too, is to really have a good schedule. So, I mean, for Paul, who's, you know, maybe uh, working a lot and not finding the time to follow his passions or, or cultivate his passions, I would urge you, Paul, find a week or find a, a, an hour in your week uh, that you can dedicate to cultivating a passion. I mean, just an hour a week is going to make a little bit of a difference. We were talking earlier about, you know, life being like this big ship, and you can't just turn that ship around on a dime. You have to make these small, uh, these small little turns uh, to get it all the way turned around. So one hour a week is certainly a good start. Um, schedule it for me. If it's not in my calendar, I don't do it. So I, I have to make sure and schedule things. And then actually uh, take action on, on that. But just start small. All right, our next question comes from Ruth. How do you know when you're in the right job? 
Well, you know what, Ruth? I would say that there isn't a such thing as a right job. There are right jobs. So, so ask a different question here. Do, does the job align with your values? Well, in order to determine that, you have to figure out what your values are and then see, okay, does this piece fit with that piece? And, and if not, then, then you'll know pretty quickly. Here, here are some warning signs, though. Do you live for the weekends? Do you live for 5 p.m.? Do you call it a job? If you call it a job, it's probably not the right job long term. Doesn't mean you you should you know walk out walk in your boss's office today and say screw you I quit. That's a terrible plan if you don't have anything else lined up in terms of making a living. But you can set yourself on on, on the right path um, to make whatever you're doing part of your life. Uh, something else we were talking to Sean about before the show is. You know, coming from the corporate world where it was a, a job or a career, definitely not a mission, it felt very different. I had a professional life and a personal life, and I had kept, kept those separate. Now I just have a life. And work-life balance, is, I still have to have a balanced life, but it's not about work-life balance. This is just a part of my life, and it doesn't feel like work all the time. Sometimes it feels like drudgery, but it doesn't feel like, oh, I have to go to the office. I have to go to work. I have to go to the job. Back nose to the grindstone. Like That's not what I'm focused on. What, what I'm focused on is, is this a meaningful part of my life? Is this the most meaningful, useful uh, use of, of my time? And if so, then I know that it does align with, with who I want to be. But, but don't, don't presuppose that there's one thing that you were meant to do for the rest of your life. That, that is just simply not the case, Ruth. Uh, the truth is there are dozens, maybe hundreds of things that you can be passionate about. The key is to find something that aligns with your values, beliefs, interests, desires, and cultivate that into a passion over time. Be willing to quit, be willing to change, but also be willing to stick through it past the excitement. That's when you found the right mission for you. Yeah, when I was reading this question, I was trying to think of someone who who I, I would consider is in a, like a traditional job, but really lives a passion. Who many life. people would, would consider a traditional job, right. you're saying. Yeah, yeah and, and I thought about our CPA and how he, he does love accounting. I, I, you know, whether he looks at, at, at his CPA position as a career or whether he looks at it as a job or a mission, I haven't asked him that question. But I do know that the, the work that he does allows him to go out and rock climb. It allows him to go out on these long camping trips. It allows him to uh, go and, and, and mountain bike and do all of these uh, things that really fuel him mm -hmm. and, and drive him and, and cultivate many other passions. It gives him that balance that, that he needs. And I've talked to, to Connor about that as well. That's our CPA. And and you know, he just got married recently, and he has a very balanced life, and accounting is part of that. Now, accounting aligns with what he wants to do. Now, for me, that would be the, one of the worst professions. But, but so would horseback riding that I talked about earlier. Like, there's no way. I don't want to go horseback riding personally. There are plenty of people who can be passionate about accounting. There are plenty of people who can be passionate about horseback riding. I am not passionate about either. It doesn't mean that you can't be passionate about both. All right. Martin asks, how does one handle a job where there are so many people involved and so many tasks to accomplish in little time? I think you just need to, to schedule 
what you're doing and prioritize accordingly. It sounds like you're in a chaotic environment, and the way to reduce the chaos is to turn down the volume. That means start starting to say no to things that you can say no to. Practice saying no a little bit more each day until you get to the point where, like Ryan and I are, where we get to say no to 99% of the things uh, that happen. It didn't happen overnight, but but get very good at saying no over time because that allows you to say yes to the things that will be the most productive, the most important, the things that are true priorities in your life. Yeah, plan your work and work your plan. A question from Heather. How can I get companies to look at me after taking several years off to be a stay-at-home mom and volunteer? Heather, you got to sell yourself. Um, If you're looking at the last several years like, oh, I didn't do anything much and there's nothing really to talk about, then then that's going to be a difficult sell. But try to, again, look at this situation and find all the positives. Try to have a positive mental attitude towards this. So I'm sure that you have become a very good organizer at this point with, with your kids. I'm, I'm sure that you are very, very good at, at focusing and prioritizing. Those are things that I'm certain that you have learned uh, from several years of parenting. The, the key is, is, is just finding these little points to, to help sell yourself. I mean, when I was hiring people, um, if they had a gap in school or, or, or a gap in work, I honestly didn't think much of it. Um, unless they made something of it. But ultimately, if they could show me that they were going to be a good employee and that they were going to be focused and that they were uh, going to make sure and be prioritized uh, when when working for me, I mean, those are the types of things I was looking for. So uh, this is a matter of really finding those small things that really aren't that small when it comes to uh, working for a company that you've learned over the last several years from parenting. Heather, grab a piece of paper and write down at the top, what makes Heather awesome? And I want you to think about that because that when you're selling yourself, you're going to figure out what makes you awesome. Maybe you're an awesome mom. Maybe you're an awesome listener. Maybe you work hard. Maybe you have talents that no one else has. What makes you awesome? And look at that list repeatedly. And, and once you are able to understand that list, not just intellectually, but you understand it emotionally, you feel it down in your bone marrow, you know what makes you awesome, then you'll be able to explain that that gap won't be a gap at all. It's not actually a gap. I look at it like this. Now, clearly, I've never been a stay-at-home mom. Uh, breaking news. Not yet. <laughs> but... Um, I'll tell you this, if I had to go back to the corporate world right now, I'd have a huge gap. I'd have a five-year gap in, in employment uh, where I was self-employed, and, and uh, I'd have some explaining to do there. Instead of trying to explain my way out of it, I'm going to make a list of what makes me awesome, what makes me unique, what makes me the most qualified uh, to, to move in, into this area. And it's going to be partially your personality. It's going to be partially your skill set. But most of the time when we're when we were interviewing people back in the corporate world, you just it's about the feeling you get when you sit down with that person. Are they going to do an outstanding job for us? And, and are they go, are, are they prepared to to not just be ambitious, but are they prepared to put in that work that sets them apart from from the rest of the pack? Last question from Polaroid Newcastle. Does a job have to be meaningful? You know, when I think about having to pay the bills and finding some type of work to pay the bills, I, I the first question 
Well, the first thing I would look for is, yeah, is this job or is this career or is this mission going to be meaningful? Like, yes, that is something that I would ask. But I think the important question is, does this job, career, mission, does it align with my values and beliefs? I think that is where uh, I would start. If I'm if I'm looking at uh, my work and trying to find meaning in it, I'm probably not going to call it a job. I'm going to be working toward that 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 mission of mine. And I'll, I'll move over to our next segment here real quick, the, the added value portion of the show where we each recommend something that has added value to our lives because uh, Daniel Pink has a phenomenal TED Talk that is called the puzzle of motivation. And he points out, he points to three things here, and this will help with Polaroid Newcastle's question. Uh, purpose, mastery, and autonomy are what people look for in, in the most meaningful work. So if you're trying to cultivate something into a passion, you are going to need a certain level of purpose, a certain level. So, so purpose, meaning I, I feel like I, this thing is meaningful to me. This work that I'm doing is meaningful. Uh, a sense of mastery. Am I constantly improving at this? Am I getting better? Am I mastering this this thing? And then autonomy. Do I have a, a my, control of my own destiny, a, a certain amount of agency in, in my work? And if you have those three things, you're going to be much more satisfied in, in whatever you do. So does your job have to be meaningful? Um, your work needs to be meaningful if you want to live a meaningful life, if you want to optimize your life. And so I'm going to have Sean put the uh, uh, TED Talk, Dan Pink's TED Talk in the notes. He also wrote a a great book just called Drive. We'll put a link to that in in the show notes as well. Talks about um, how money is certainly not the number one motivator. The true motivators are purpose, mastery, autonomy. And then of course, we want to earn a living as well. But if you have those things, you're going to feel much more fulfilled. Ryan, what do you want to recommend this week? I uh, listened to this book on tape um, with uh, our producer, Sean Harding, on our way to uh, Spokane, Washington. Um, It was called The Art – I'm sorry, The War of Art. Yes. There's there's a book called The Art of War, right? And then there's The War of Art. So this is uh, Stephen Pressfield. He's a guy that wrote uh, The Legend of uh, Bagger Vance. He wrote a book called The War of Art. And I'm just going to read one little snippet from this – because this is the type of uh, points that he makes and in, in, in kind of the, the meaning that he drives towards. The artist committing himself to his calling has volunteered for hell. Whether he knows it or not, he will be dining for the duration on a diet of isolation, rejection, self-doubt, despair, ridicule, contempt, and humiliation. That just really really resonated with me. Because when I think about how we gave up everything to do this, uh, we we did essentially put ourselves through this hell. Now, getting through the other side, pushing through that uh, has been the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. Right. But <clears throat> he just does a very good job of helping people to cultivate their passion and, and, and give them a very uh, realistic outlook on what it takes to cultivate a passion, what it takes to to create your own art. Now he says the artist, um, and this is called the war of art. But when I, you know, you could uh, you could substitute the word artist, um, you know, with the the professional, which he actually talks about the professional too. But yeah, it's a great book. Um, if you're out there and you are having uh, 
struggles, you're having problems committing to what you're passionate about, this book will give you a nice little kick in the butt. Yeah, if if you're feeling resistance, I think is the word he uses yeah, a lot throughout the book. Yes, I didn't want to do any spoilers, but there it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I I just know that that when I talk about drudging through the drudgery, that that's that's my phrase. And then mm-hmm. uh, Pressfield just talks about you know, getting through the resistance. Yeah, like the first few chapters are all about resistance, and you're right, man. It is it's it's masterful. It's really good. Yeah, check it out. Let's uh, move on to our next segment. Oh, by the way, we'll put a link to that the the War of Art in in the show notes as well. And then our, our last uh, next segment here is what we call Right Here, Right Now, where we get to talk about what's going on in the lives of the minimalists. Ryan, we got Tuesdays with the Minimalists every Tuesday in March, 7 p.m. Eastern on on Twitter and Periscope. That's been really fun lately. You digging that? Yeah, man, that's a good time. It's uh, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I don't know why, like, doing these rapid-fire, like, live question Q&As, it's I'm a lot more comfortable doing that than like these podcasts for some reason. I, I think it may have something to do with the video aspect of it. I'm not Maybe. sure. They're live video uh, uh, broadcast, but they're also ephemeral too, right? So it's on. It's only uh, posted. <laughs> that is true. I'm like, I know this has gone in 24 hours. Right, this is going to be deleted. <laughs> so if I say anything crazy. Um, people only have 24 hours to view it. <laughs> right, right. And, and so far fewer people will see that. You know, it, it's going to be, it'll be just a few thousand uh, people as opposed to the you know five six hundred thousand people listen to the podcast, so uh, it, it's a it's a big difference. But uh, it, so maybe it's more intimate in, in a way. And the rapid fire questions it makes us sort of think on our, on our feet in, in a different way, and our interactions are a lot different. So you can join us Tuesdays with the Minimalists every Tuesday seven p.m. in in March seven p.m. Eastern Eastern yes yeah. on uh, Periscope and Twitter uh, I already mentioned our film but if you want tickets to our film you want to see us on tour you want to see the trailer to the documentary it's just minimalismfilm.com and then you can click on see the film and, and find all the tour dates there and also you can find the theater closest to you also a coffee house tour at theminimalists.com slash coffee house uh, it's also on our instagram account at the minimalist ryan and i recently opened a coffee house with a trio of awesome like-minded friends it's called bandit coffee company and it's in St. Petersburg, Florida. We encourage you to check it out. You can find all the details, theminimalists.com slash coffeehouse. You can see beautiful, beautiful, beautiful pictures of that space. It's a very well-curated, very intentional space, and uh, a lot more details coming on that in the future as well. Uh, in the meantime, stop by, grab a cup of coffee. It's relatively inexpensive, and we hope it adds value to your life. Also, I'm teaching a, a quick writing workshop I just taught one uh, last month, and it was awesome. I had hundreds of people attend. I'm going to limit the seating on this one, but it's coming up in, uh, in a few months. It's June 26, 2016. It's called How to Write Better. It's a very attenuated version of my four-week-long class. You can get all the details on that at howtowritebetter.org. And let's not forget about minimalist.org. If you are someone who needs some support on your journey through simplicity, or maybe you're someone who loves to support others, uh, check out minimalist.org. We have 100 different meetups happening every single month all across the world. If for some reason there's not a meetup near you, no worries. You can always go to the online city where people do a great job of uh, supporting and, and, and help helping others uh, with their journeys into simplicity. Some great stuff going on there. Finally, here are some voicemail comments from our listeners. Hi, my name is Corinne. I'm from Boston. I've been listening to your podcast probably starting two days ago, and I've 
got all the way through to the sentimental episode very quickly. You know, I travel a lot and I spent a lot of time in Europe and I found when I was traveling from town to town, I always had the impulse to buy something, a piece of memorabilia that I could come home with and, you know, remember that destination. And I find it ironic, you know, three years after living in Europe, I was in Latvia and I was really cold and I purchased a pair of knit wool socks on the side of the street just because, um, you know, I needed them. I was so cold. And to this day, they are my absolute favorite socks. I probably wear them every single night to bed in the winter. And, you know, they really do bring a lot of value to my life. Whereas, you know, I would save maps from the cities I went to and little knickknacks and photos. And they're all tucked away in a box, um, you know, still in my apartment, which I'm having a hard time letting go of do that sentimental value to them. But I find it ironic this, you know, <laughs> these socks that I had to purchase out of need. Every time I put them on, you know, I refer to them as my Latvian socks. And I remember my times in Europe. Hi, this is Diana from L.A. I was calling in response to the woman last week with the question about the heirloom jewelry. Um, my mom and auntie actually took one of their grandmother's necklaces to a jeweler and made two pairs of earrings out of it so they both could have something that they liked and that they could wear. Um, and they, they both got it. It didn't have to be just one of them. Um, so that could be a possibility. Maybe she could make, um, something that's more her style or some earrings or a small necklace instead of a multi-stone necklace, maybe just one stone or something like that. And you could even ask the jeweler if they would like to keep the extra material. Hey, guys, this is Justin calling from Vancouver, B.C. Uh, just finished listening to some of your podcasts and I find it really refreshing. I just had a couple of tips on things, uh, on ways to keep things simple. So, the first one was um, the three other things. So I like your suggestion on the 30-day rule where you wait 30 days before making a purchase to find out if you really like it. Um, something that's helped in contrast for that is I write down, if I didn't purchase that one item, what, what would be the next three things I would buy? And uh, the reason why I find this helpful is because I often want um, the next three things almost equal to the one item I was contemplating purchasing. So. Um, this just helps me reassure that uh, I don't need any of those items um, and that I should really think about that one I was contemplating. Something else that's really helped is building kits. So I'm passionate about photography and computers. So what I've done is I've built myself a kit for my computer and for my camera. So I have a backpack for my camera and I have everything inside of it that's there that I need to do the uh, photography. So. If I ever need to go, I just grab my bag and I can take it with me. And if uh, if I lose something or something gets damaged, I know exactly what to replace and it's easy to restock. So one way that I could also apply that is uh, like I've heard people saying they've had issues in their kitchen where they are not sure how to pare down what they already have. So building something like that, like a, like a kit for baking um, or a kit for cooking supper or doing certain types of foods, um, would really help to minimize the amount of items that you have in the kitchen and to keep things simple. Hi, Josh and Ryan. I wanted to comment on sentimental items. 28 years ago, I donated my wedding dress to charity. Instead of my wedding dress being packed away in a closet, I could imagine the additional weddings or even Halloween parties the dress would attend. 
Of course, it's probably been recycled or tossed in trash by now. But I think its journey, whether it was long or short, was much more interesting than being packed away. All right, Joe, that's it for this episode. If you have a question for The Minimalists, give us a call, 406-219-7839. And if you leave here with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things, because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing that you gotta have You gotta reach for And you gotta grab Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it So tear your eyes away Or tear